race, class, and gender are the three third rails that cannot be separated, and we constantly try to separate them in this country, and you can't do that. They're all connected at some level. Somewhere where there's one, there's the other, and then there's the other. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Howard Bryant. He's an author and journalist. He's a TV personality. He's on the radio regularly. I listened to an interview he gave on the radio about a week ago with Jeremy Schapp, someone we've had on the show, talking about what it's been like for him having a 15-year-old African-American son in this kind of climate of protest and outrage for what happened to George Floyd. Uh, Howard's most recent book is Full Dissidence, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field, which I think was incredibly prophetic in addressing a kind of nexus of issues that we are grappling with now. And Howard was uh, extraordinarily useful for me of just parsing a lot of what's going on in, in the culture and the history and I think looking ahead to where this is going in November with the election, but um, just on, a, on the most basic level of, of just trying to, trying to listen to somebody that's um, been confronting this in a more penetrating way than most with a pen for, for a long time was uh, incredibly useful for me. So I hope you enjoy Howard Bryant. Please rate and review the show wherever you're listening to it, if you can. It will help people find it. So I hope you enjoy. How you been doing with uh, quarantine and everything outside in the world? I think it's been as remarkable for me as it's been... For everybody else, I think first trying to convince your 15-year-old that now is not the time to organize sleepovers, I remember telling him, this is not the reason why they pulled you out of school. <laughs> they didn't pull you out of school so you could have sleepovers and hang out with your friends. This is a extraordinary case, and I think that once he got it, then everything sort of started to come together a little bit, and obviously... I think what's interesting when you're a reporter and a journalist, as you know, is that you essentially always wear two hats. There's the life that you live, and then there's the life that you have to cover. There's news out here. There are things happening. It's, it's, it's our responsibility to sort of try to make sense of this for other people yeah. and, and, to, and to look at the aftermath, or not even the aftermath, but as it's happening, how are people or how are industries manipulating what's taking place? What is this going to look like? What is it? What is the future going to look like because of the time that we're in right now? How do you how do you see it with journalism right now? Just to start off with, I just every day it seems like there's more layoffs, there's places folding. Uh, exactly, and this is the the thing I've been saying this a lot. Uh, usually, when you're talking about restaurants or you're talking about stores and shops and everything else, there's a difference. There's a difference between effect and damage. Right now, we're feeling the effects of it, but we haven't yet come close to understanding the full scope of the damage that this is causing. And we're certainly seeing that in the media and journalism side of it, where 
immediately you've got furloughs and you've got layoffs and you've got more and more and more contraction and in some of the bedrocks that you thought were going to be more stable, such as the athletic, they're retrenching and you look at, at ESPN furloughing and they're retrenching. And so a business that was already backpedaling is now backpedaling with even greater speed. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting in looking at all of this is this sort of semi-denial, this idea that, oh, yeah, okay, after the shutdown and then when we get back to normal and then when things start up again, it's not going to be like that. There are going to be a lot of things that do not come back. And that's when we start to really understand the damage. And that damage isn't even going to be understood for several months or years after that, considering we're looking at a second wave, people are trying to get out there right now into the summer and have some form of normalcy and, and spend some time together. Because once we hit mid-October, who knows what this is going to look like when, when flu season starts. Right. Do you think there's going to be more touchstones out there of, are there going to be, is there going to be another George Floyd in the next few weeks, I mean, is it because it just seems like it's going to be the next George Floyd in the next couple of days. I mean, the next couple of days, yeah. The George Floyd was not remarkable for what happened. George Floyd was remarkable for the reaction to what happened. Mm. And and then and to me, the most remarkable part of it is the mainstream corporate reaction, because this is not new. I swear, I've said this a gazillion times over the past week or so. I, I really felt like I fell down the stairs, wound up in a coma, woke up, and nobody told me. And nobody told me. Because on Monday, I had all these text messages and phone calls from all of these people telling me that they were looking out for me and they wanted to make sure I was okay and that they wanted to lend whatever help they could. And my reaction was, what happened? <laughs> what, what's going on here? And I, I mean, seriously, I mean, the, it was one of those, you know, you get those news days in your personal life or in your professional life when just the phone just keeps buzzing, alert, 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 alert. And and I'm like, okay, did something happen? And so I'm like looking online trying to find out what went down. And I'm like, oh, this is all about the protests? Hmm. And I just found the reaction to be remarkable simply because I don't remember this I don't remember this great national outpouring of grief for Ferguson. I remember this great national outpouring of interest in Ferguson, but not, not grief and certainly not support. I remember a lot of people talking about Michael Brown being no angel, but you're not as the New York times reported, but I'm not seeing that when people talk about George Floyd, who was technically committing a crime when this happened, but instead, instead of, highlighting whatever it was he did, the conversation was about proportionality and about police response, totally different than, than in Ferguson. And yeah. that is the part where you look at and say, okay, well, maybe this is something different. And maybe it's simply a byproduct of, of the locale. Ferguson is a poor St. Louis suburb community, whereas Minneapolis is considered to be great liberal bastion with a whole lot of white people and a whole lot of well-meaning white people. And it seems that the same issues in, in, in one place you have in the other. I, I don't know. I, I, I really do believe it's a perfect storm of a whole lot of things. And so I've been spending the last several days trying to come up with some thoughts as to, or a cogent thought about when people say, why now, why is it this one and not that? And 
who knows why a certain event becomes the match when others didn't. Right. Well, it seems like, I mean, just reading some of your tweets over the last few months, um, often it seems like you're sort of tapping people on the shoulder a little bit to sort of awaken them from a lot of collective amnesia. A tweet recently where you had Ruth Bader Ginsburg's response to um, Kaepernick kneeling, her disapproval of it or Obama's disapproval of it. And Uh uh this is is very interesting to see the responses you get that uh, when it's convenient (laughs) versus sticking your neck out um, for very similar things that have happened historically. Uh, why? I guess I'm still kind of grappling with a similar thing to what you raise of why this, what made this a perfect storm compared to all of the others. I mean, I was just reading in the New York Times the other day about the TV series Cops finally coming off the air. It's about time. It's not like about 30 years too late. But right. yeah, I, I feel like there's a few things at work here. Number one, I think you, you've got to put COVID into this. Mm-hmm. The fact that you have a very slow metabolism. People are cooped up in the house for 90 days. Yeah. And so when you've got that slow metabolism and you're not looking at video clips here while you're getting on with your regularly scheduled life, you may pay more attention to this stuff because you're in the house now. That's one thing. I think that there's a perfect storm taking place on top of that where you have 40 million people applying for unemployment. I think you have that on top of something else, which is you have three and a half years of, of a president whose reaction to everything that happens on this subject is more and more and more callousness. As we saw today, he's in very fine people mode. And once more, you know, you're looking at, at Charlottesville. And, and I think the other thing is that's important. There are two more things that I think about. One is certainly this is also happening at the same time where you have not just George Floyd, but you also have Ahmaud Arbery and you also have Breonna Taylor, all happening in a very short period. But on top of that, you have the viral video with Amy Cooper, essentially weaponizing her whiteness and actively calling 911 when with these other these other incidences, you see what happens when 911 gets involved. You see what happens when you call the police on people or when the police get involved with black people. So the fact that this well-privileged, clearly disturbed woman acting completely within her rights and weaponizing her rights, I think that stuff really resonated. I think it really had a lot to do with it. And I think that there's one other thing on top of that, and that is, I think there's a delayed reaction taking place here. If you were 18 years old in 2008 and the 2008 election was your first election, you're 30 years old now and you're seeing this country go backwards and you feel betrayed. And a lot of people, a lot of young people who were at Grant Park and watching that on TV when Barack Obama was elected, believe that we had crossed a threshold, that we had entered this post-racial universe where we weren't going to be having the same conversations that their parents had and that there was a, an opportunity to debunk a lot of the, the paranoia that people thought black people had. And now you see this and you start to realize that maybe it's time to listen. Hmm. How do you think people, how do you think America is doing or white America is doing 
I mean, like you bring up Amy Cooper, I couldn't believe how often Christian Cooper's alma mater was brought up in the context of what happened. Exactly, because you're talking about class. Because, look, race, class, and gender are the three-third rails that cannot be separated, and we constantly try to separate them in this country, and you can't do that. They're all connected at some level. Somewhere where there's one, there's the other, and then there's the other. And essentially that narrative that he was a a Harvard-educated gay birdwatcher somehow made him more legitimate than Michael Brown. And somehow made him, it's even more egregious that he was one of the good ones. And because he was one of the good ones, if they can do that to one of the good ones, what are they going to do to everybody else? And that was part of the argument. But when I watched that video, the first thing I said was, this isn't her first rodeo. She's so practiced in this. She's done this before. And if she hasn't done it before, she knew what she was going to do when her moment arrived. If you're in danger and you call 911, you tell them you're in danger, and then they start asking you questions about descriptors. Anybody who's going to get in a 911 call and immediately talk about the race of the perpetrator, then that is a, a very interesting tell. More than anything else watching that video was the idea that she was so brazen about it and she looked directly in the camera and she said, film me and I'm going to call the police. Anyway, the brazenness of that privilege, which was she knew that no matter what, she honestly believed and she believed this, that no matter what the actual facts were, that she could be videotaped and still have the police come to her rescue, that she could actually allow that to happen and she still believed that when police arrived, they were going to harm that man. That was, yeah. that was the type of honesty that we hadn't really seen in some ways since Rodney King, where people said, oh, well, I don't really believe you. I need to see the video if there was only some proof. That, that was your serum. That was your truth serum right there. And if you're black, you're watching that, and you're going, yep, that's about right. Yep, we've seen that before. And, and so... All of these different things together all hit at once. And you started to recognize, if you were paying attention, that you can't run from this anymore. I don't know why this is the, re- this is the one that made people think they couldn't run anymore, but they couldn't and they haven't. And I think there's one last thing to go with that, too, is that then to protest. And while you protest, you have the state essentially unleash violence on you and they start running MRAPs down your neighborhood and not in Ferguson. And suddenly you've got tanks in your tree, uh, along your tree line street and they're shooting rubber bullets at you when you're just sitting on your porch. And now all of a sudden the state is turning its cannons at you. And all of a sudden it feels a bit more real than it does watching it on CNN in some black neighborhood. And all of this together creates a movement. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, even even the Amy Cooper incident, I found it fascinating where 90% of it was just what you're describing, the reaction, but 10% of it was, it seemed to be conservatives saying, how about this example for the Me Too movement? Like yes, why right. we need to, we need to talk about Amy Cooper in well, exactly, right? And then I don't even know if it's ten. I feel like Yogi Berra right now. Well, ninety percent of it was this, and ten percent of it was that, and another twenty-five percent was this, and another thirty-five percent was that. <laughs> what about the dogs? 
Yeah. <laughs> let's, not, let's not forget about the dog because people were – that was a, the first thing people – oh, my God, look at what she's doing to that dog. I'm like, wait a minute, look at what she's doing. Right. She's going to kill a man. She's going to – exactly. This is an attempted murder, and you're worried about the dog. But naturally, that was a huge part of it. Yeah. The dog part was actually a big part because it showed her own cruelty toward the animal. Right. That it, was, it was just – it was a big part of the story. It was a big part of the story when they reported it. It's what happened to the dog. What happened to the dog? And then they took the dog, and then it was another story when she got the dog back. Yeah. Oh, it God. A, it was like, well, wait a minute. She got the dog back? How did she get the dog back? Oh. And when you read the statement, it was essentially that the police and the agency, they all just punted and gave her a dog back. Yeah. God. Well, and, and I mean, what was it, today or was it yesterday? You had the Joint Chiefs of Staff apologizing for that photo op with Trump in front of the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does feel – these are things that I've just never seen before where I'm just wondering, where is this headed? I mean, we're, I mean, it, we're headed to November. Well, but November I almost feel – <laughs> But, I mean, it seems as if in either direction of where this election might go – as a result of whatever's happened in the last several months or what will happen between now and November, it doesn't seem to matter in terms of making me feel like this has just begun. Is that your sense or where is this going to go from here? Like, I mean, and where does sports play into it in an odd way? Well, I think that the, one of the hard parts in thinking about this is where we're heading immediately in the short term is November. Where we're heading in the long term, obviously, is a reimagining of what this country looks like. I am of the mind, certainly, that we are witnessing this country falling apart. And when people are asking this other question, not just why now, but why is their corporate reaction so overwhelmingly in support of Black Lives Matter, a phrase that law enforcement tried to turn into one of domestic terrorism, how, mm. how is it that that these mainstream corporations are now standing with their black citizens. Part of me feels like there is a recognition on the part of, of corporate America that we're really on the verge and that something has to be quelled and it, and it, it really cannot be ignored anymore. This is a tinderbox that's happening. That pressure valve is being, is being turned to its maximum and people start to see that. It's also very difficult to to not have an interest in diffusion when you have a president who is essentially deploying prison guards to American streets and has the National Guard pointing rifles at American citizens and at white citizens. And when this stuff happens, you can't apply pressure. You can't you cannot approach pressure with more pressure. And one of the things that I had been saying about this is that you can push black people around. You can kill black people. You can do whatever you want to black people, really, because all black people really want is to reach zero with you. They don't want more than that. They want to find a way to hit zero with you, just to get to some form of even footing. And they're not going to ask and fight for more than that for the most part. We really never have. We just want to be free. That's it. However, you start doing that to white people who really honestly believe, especially the younger generation, where they, they don't just think about freedom. They know they are free. 
and you start adding more and more force to them and you start shooting pepper spray and tear gas at them, they're coming out double. They're coming out triple. And the minute they break, then the country breaks. The minute you have white people, young white people who believe in freedom and believe in, in their place, the minute the state breaks them, then the republic is dead. And hmm. so, and the reason why it's different isn't because the black concern is, is less legitimate. It's because people don't believe us. It's because when we take to the streets, they immediately respond to us with riot gear and tell us to go back into our homes and they tell us to relax. But if everybody's out there, you've got a massive, massive problem on your hands. And so there's that. Where does it go for sports? Well, sports has got a really interesting problem on its hands because it's got a twofold problem. Number one, you don't know what COVID is doing to your business model. How are you going to, you know, you're going to, how long is the public going to watch games without fans? How long, how long is it going to take before you feel comfortable even going to a game? Most people aren't even going to a game without a vaccine. Sports has always been the place where you've had a certain lane in times of crisis. You were going to be the healer. You were going to be the one that brought the country together after 9-11 or after the Boston Marathon or after whatever crises you want to name. You were the one that continued to play during World War II to keep morale up. But this type of crisis, you are the problem because you can't be in a gathering of 50,000 fans. Mm -hmm. So what do you do now with your business model? And what does that business model look like? Who wants to go? Do you want to go to a, a, a baseball game and sit for four hours wearing a mask? And, you know, yeah. and all of it, what is, what is all of this look like? And then the secondary part of it is now you've got these organizations, especially the National Football League, where no other corporation, sports or otherwise, in my opinion, has made its feelings toward kneeling more clear. Now you've got them saying Black Lives Matter as well. With and no mention so, of Kaepernick. With no mention, with of no mention, exactly. With no mention of Colin Kaepernick. And so... How can you have reconciliation without truth? How are you going to be able to say that we were wrong and yet we're not going to make this thing right with Kaepernick? As I've been saying fairly routinely, this is the equivalent of giving a man a death sentence, having the DNA exonerate him, and still keeping him on death row. Where's your credibility on that? You have no credibility if you're not willing to finally sit down and clean this slate. And so for everything Roger Goodell has said, the one thing you don't hear is you don't hear the owners. You don't hear the owners saying Colin Kaepernick is welcome to play in the National Football League. So to me, the real issue when it comes to sports is how much of the walk are you willing to walk? How much are you going to listen? How much are you going to stop pandering to white fans and having the shoulders big enough to represent everybody? because really what we're talking about is a pander to white fans, right? I mean, if you right. talk to black fans, are black fans saying, I'm not watching a game again if Colin Kaepernick plays football? Who are we actually really talking about? 100%. Right? So, here, that, so these are the questions for sports. Does sports have the stamina to actually listen to everybody? And they've boxed themselves into a bit of a corner, as has Hollywood, as has everybody else. What are you going to do with the demographics that have traditionally looked horrible? 
What are you going to do with your hiring in, in the NFL? What are you going to do with your, your casting in Hollywood? What are you going to do with your front offices in baseball? What are you going to do with all of these things that you say matter when technically you've never lived up to it? Well, they could borrow Nancy Pelosi's Kenty cloth and then everything well, would be solved. They could do that. Exactly. <laughs> and you talk to any real African and they'll be like, what is that? <laughs> I just wonder with this tinderbox of a quarter of the country is unemployed, tens of millions of people can't pay their rent, and that eviction, not not being evicted, is about to expire after three months where you still owe all the money. Um, where people look, where, what people use sports for to avoid real life, avoid politics and all of that, to to, to the extent that they do. Um, yeah, I mean, what you were saying earlier about that, that this has exposed the fault lines of a failed state, it just feels like the pressure is just building and building. And we've just started with a lot of these asteroids that are coming right at us. And I'm not really hearing any solutions to those on top of it, um, beyond more, more militarization of police, stiffer sentences and, um, even even where we started talking about that cops program, I mean, I was looking into some of the the demographics of what what that show has really wrought on America mm-hmm. um, from Reagan era um, war on drugs to I think I have it here thirty five percent of all of the arrests that were on cops were drug related crime, which is triple the the rate of real life arrests. And, I mean, almost all the police that were showing were white. The vast mm-hmm. majority of the people being arrested were black. And the police had com- complete editorial oversight of everything That's that right. was shown on that program. 100%. And I was just 100%. wondering, like, you have 30 years of that inculcating the culture of that this is what law enforcement really is exclusively from the one perspective and it survives Rodney King. It survives all these other atrocities that have been committed by the police. And yet here it stops. Like here was enough was enough. It, it's, it is very strange to wrap my head around it, that this was the incident that would change it. Or maybe not the incident, but as you say, a nexus creating a perfect storm. No question. No well, question. And- Who knows what it what it's going to be, and this was it. And for you, with with a, I was listening to an interview you had recently with Jeremy Schatt where you talked about how you struggle with the books and, and all of your work uh, tackling such a difficult subject as, as race in America. Um, what it's like for you to have a 15-year-old son who wants to join these protests and not just join them but, but be at the front of them. I wonder if you could just speak speak to that issue of somebody who, not necessarily, I don't know that he wants to follow in your footsteps, but his level of engagement, now that you're seeing it once once removed as a father, what is that like for you? Well, I think one of the things is it's very difficult for me, obviously, when you write what I write and you say the things that I say, to say, okay, son, you can't go out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to allow you to be part of this. And so we call him half dissident now. And so he's, he's great. I mean, I, 
and I when we had a you know we had a conversation about this when he came over and said he wanted to go out in the protest and I said no, and he's like, I have to go and I said why do you want to go? What is your purpose for going? And he said to me, well I know. I know that you've always said that these conversations are white people talking to other white people and that we should never have to beg for our humanity, but what they do is going to affect us. So I have a duty to be out there. And I was like, Jesus, that's a pretty good response. Hmm. And I was like, okay, but you're not going out there by yourself. I'm going with you. Hmm. And the reason I said, because I said, listen, I said, I want you to know that one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you despite your fair skin, despite everything, is the minute that you believe that you are the same as these white kids that are going out there. I said, because if the cop starts to see you, he's going to zero in on you. There's a pretty good chance of that. So don't think that you're the same. You're always going to be different, and you need to protect that. So I want you out there. I want you to absorb it, but I don't want you anywhere near the front lines. I want you to have an escape hatch when something, if something pops off and goes sideways, you beeline your ass back to this house and you understand what your safety and escape routes are going to be. And obviously I'm like, he's not going to listen to a word I said, but at this stage he will. Next year he won't. And the year after he won't, he's going to be a man. He'll be 17, 18 years old and it's going to be on him to figure it out. But I was very happy that at this moment, I had a little bit of control and a little bit of influence. And it's it's been remarkable. The last week or so, he's been to three protests, and he's I'm watching his Instagram feed become more and more and more sort of political and more aware, and it's wonderful to watch. And I think the most sort of gratifying part of it is that he still comes to me because I think one of the things that you have to pay attention to is the amount of disinformation out there, the amount of misinformation out there. That, and, and the disinformation is really key because who knows, every time he sends me some email, I'm like, you know that this is probably originating in North Korea or China or Russia or somewhere else or Alabama or next door. Who knows where this information is coming from? Who knows if this information means anything, uh, has anything of value? So remember, you're being manipulated right now. And so you've got to really spend a lot of time to figure out who sent me this, what is the intention, what does it mean, is it even true, and then start making up your opinions. Yeah. Well, and what do you what do you make? I mean, if I change the topic a little bit, when something like Last Dance comes on and we have Michael Jordan's one season in his life revisited he has all this control over it and we explore what it's like with the situation he he confronted in North Carolina with with a vocal white supremacist running against an African American and the whole Republicans buy sneakers too um, mm-hmm. how did you what did you make of ESBN putting that out so much so early the response to it and the actual substance of of what was released and and maybe the new approach to how this kind of access is going to be maybe it's not that new but where you're not going to get anywhere near these people unless they have total control with with what's being released well i think that 
one of the parts of it that's really important to consider. And I have to be, we all have to be mindful of it for what we do. And I'm certainly mindful of it as we talk about athlete activism and as we say, start using all these phrases about, you know, these athletes who are now supposedly, you know, they're supposedly getting involved in, everyone's got a production company now. And I worry about this because I look at these guys and I don't see them trying to aid journalism or aid truth. I think they're trying to manipulate it and they're trying to destroy journalism. Mm. And I think that when you look at the, a lot of these actors who are involved in this, their, their goal is empire. It's not truth. It's not, it's not anything. It's empire. It's having control. It's having rights. It's like when you watch the last dance, who had the rights to the footage, Michael Jordan and the, and, and the NBA had it. Who had final say? Obviously, Michael Tolan, the executive producer, said you know, Michael Jordan didn't exert a whole lot of control over it and that they were able to do some form of a film that they were proud of. But I worry about this from the standpoint of privatization. If you look at everything in this country being privatized, whether it's Bryant Park in New York, which is no longer a public park, whether you look at a post office or Social Security or whatever, or, or your garbage pickup. People are talking about things being privatized. And now our journalism in a lot of ways is being privatized, especially in the documentary space, because these, the, the people who are in control of it aren't going to do the interviews unless they have final say, which is not truth, um, not even close to it. And that if you want to do a documentary on the National Football League, they have to license the footage to you. And if they don't like you, they're not going to license the footage. And if you are at a basketball game and you take a video on your cell phone of Chris Paul in the layup line, that videotape actually, or that film or, you know, actually belongs to the NBA because technically speaking, because you took video inside of a building that is considered to be NBA, you know, belonging to the NBA, that it's part of the, their business, they own your footage. They can come after you. So they get to determine who gets to tell stories. And what the real problem I have with that is that they are exacting this sort of corporate control over the images that you see, and yet they are playing in publicly financed stadiums. Right. Those stadiums belong to you. They are financed by you. And yet if you don't have a great relationship with Major League Baseball or the National Hockey League, they're not going to let you make a documentary. And so the idea of privatization is really, really, really scary and really frightening. And yet I've been guilty of it. A lot of people are guilty of it when they're writing about these, these guys. They're talking about athlete activism and athlete freedom. And I look at this and I say, you better be careful because I don't know if they're into athlete freedom as much as they're into empire. And what good is empire if all you're doing is meeting the new boss and the new boss is the same as the old boss, right? Mm-hmm. And it was one of the questions that I had in the Heritage, in the, my, not this past book, but my last book in 2018, where you asked the question, you, you asked the question, I, I asked the question in the last chapter, the epilogue called The Peacemakers. What happens when the protester becomes the power? So for everything that LeBron James is doing on voter suppression and trying to get voting rights out there and working on gerrymandering and building schools and all of these different things, he is also completely connected with 
T-Mobile and AT&T and all these different corporations that he's completely tied into. And if you notice when it comes to the documentary film space, he doesn't appear on anything that he doesn't own. Mm. So all of these different questions are going to become more and more and more pronounced. And so I've taken a very sort of distant, skeptical view of it. I'm going to take a, you have to look and see how this manifests. And, and right now it's a trend that I am very wary of. Well, and then what do you make in, in the space of journalism where somebody like Bill Simmons stops writing and now has moved to podcasting and gets a rumored anywhere from 200 to a quarter billion dollars for buying up the ringer for Spotify and Joe Rogan, I've heard a hundred to 150 million for his 180 million download per month podcast that has a bigger reach than the entire cast of CNN with everything that they're covering. What do you, what do you make of these two guys uh, controlling this much air of, of, of attention and that, like with Rogan, I think um, Barry Weiss, who's probably not been having a very fun week the last couple of weeks, wrote a thing about Joe Rogan um, that a lot of people in media are just trying to figure out how Rogan is doing this with such a small team and sort of breaking all the rules for access and yet commands such a tremendous audience. Um, and then Simmons, it's, it seems a very different calculus in his case. Um, but again, the, list, the, the amount of listeners that he's commanding is just incredible. And what he wants to do with it, I think the next show was something like revisiting musical acts from the 1980s or something like that. Like it doesn't seem to have much to do with, with kind of where the culture is right now, but maybe it does because they want escapism. Um, I just wondered what you, what you made of these two figures as, as journalism collapses and there's so little space for people. It just seems so much a zero-sum game. Well, it feels a lot like capitalism. Yeah. And it feels a lot like this is where it was always heading in some degree, and the question had always been everyone trying to – they never questioned how it was going to shake out as much as they wanted to figure out a way to make sure they were the ones to be there at the end of the game when it shook out. And maybe mm. the entire shaking out of it is the problem. And so the interesting thing about both Bill Simmons and Joe Rogan to me is the fact that despite their enormous reach, there are a whole lot of people they're not reaching. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. It's like, okay, for all of these big, big, big numbers, I don't know anybody who speaks of either one of them as a, as a must in their lives. And that tells you about the, the one, the incredible space and size of this country. And it also tells you about the the fungibility sometimes of the information that right. we we're completely decentralized in a lot of ways destabilized and the way that we get our information is so different now in so many in so many different ways it's difficult to tell if it's damage or if it's simply change or or what so you sort of have to take a long view of it and 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 really do more research about how people are getting their information. And there's a difference between where you get your information and where you get your entertainment. Right. Like one of the bigger things that I was concerned about had long been getting your information from entertainment. Like the fact that more people were getting their actual news from the daily show. 
and that True. people are actually getting their news from Bill Maher. They're getting their news from comedy shows. And that was far more disturbing to me than anybody's number of downloads. It was sort of like, okay, if this is one of the elements of what I was writing about in in Full Dissidence, about the hero game, this idea that celebrity is going to save you and that celebrity is going to be celebrity is your guide and that anyone who's worked on film projects now knows that the first thing anyone wants to do, they don't talk about the the merits and strengths of a project. It's who can we attach to it? And okay. so all of this is moving in that same direction where once again, this idea that LeBron James is going to save you or that Beyonce and Jay-Z are they're going to tap you on the shoulder of this celebrity lottery and pay for your college, and that this is replacing policy. These are the things that really concern me. Or, or Floyd Mayweather paying for, for George Floyd's funeral. That's right. Or Floyd Mayweather, or now LeBron James and Russell Westbrook are both doing documentaries on Black Wall Street. And so in some ways, absolutely, this stuff is valuable. They can use their reach. I'm so tired of the term using their platform because it's, it, 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 it suggests a level of idealism and a level of, um, you know, uh, I don't know what, word, what I'm looking for, that there's, a, um, there's some goodness to it when really it just might be empire. And yeah. I fear empire. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't particularly like, that we have to rely on the charity of billionaires rather than no, exactly. have, have no unions. Altruism. Exactly. That's right. I mean, there's no altruism to this if we're really telling ourselves the truth. There's a financial component to all of it. There's a, certainly a financial slash control element to all of it. And, and so much of that is designed to destroy the public space. Yeah. And destroying the public space is what this country has been doing really for the last 60 years. And so to me, that's the stuff that I'm really, really concerned about, the fact that public wealth is essentially disappearing. It's already gone. Public wealth is virtually zero now. And now the public access is also disappearing as empire takes over. And this is exactly what this country has been building toward. One of the one of the most disturbing things for me in escaping New York City, only 30 miles, but it feels like I'm in a different country in Connecticut, is every time I, I go to buy a pack of cigarettes from a corner store, there is a massive lineup of people just scratching lottery tickets fanatically. No, exactly. This is what we want. This is capitalism. This is what we've done. And think about what we've done to black the black people that we watch and we laud them for making $20 million a year because they won that lottery. It's one of the yeah. things that we talk about with journalism that I really worry about is this entire sports debtor in jail narrative that everybody glamorizes so much that if it weren't for sportsmen, I'd be dead or in jail. And I take the argument that, okay, the only reason we're having this conversation is because you're filthy, filthy rich. But what does it say about a country if, at this late stage in the game, dead or in jail is the best you can do. If right. we're still talking about that, right. then we failed. Then this really is a failure. And that 
you need to be that one person with the golden ticket so you can get to the NBA. And if you don't get to the NBA, you're going to prison. Seems to be quite a middle ground. Or you're going to be in the grave. And yeah. when we think about it, when you look proportionally about the number of people who actually make the NBA, what they tell you is there's a lot of people in prison, prison and there's a lot of dead people. Yeah. The odds, as they say, are not in your favor. Well, no, and I mean, I, I mean, just listening to an, a recent interview with with Dana White, who's been so fierce in trying to get get his operation back on the ground or back on an island <laughs> uh, in Dubai, um, you know, just, just so dangerous, and yet seeing him defend an operation that has absolutely no financial transparency with all his top stars retiring because of the unfairness of a system that's made Dana White an extraordinary amount of money. He's the greatest star that the UFC has ever produced, but everybody under him making nothing, no unions, and to see him defend it the way he does, it, it, it just sounded like, like John Gotti sort of defending business as usual, sort of. Yep. Well, and, and so let me just pivot away to you. I, I was rereading your coverage of Muhammad Ali's funeral. I guess it was the, the four-year anniversary of that on June 3rd. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what that was like for you and then also compare it and maybe contrast it to the response that Kobe Bryant received upon his death. Because it, it seemed unexpected that there was some symmetry there in the outpouring of support, and yet uh, their, their legacies are, are, I don't know, it, 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 it was just an odd, there was, the symmetry was odd to me in, in the response, I thought. Well... Well, to answer the first question, um, the Muhammad Ali funeral was the one of the singular sort of pleasures of my life. Um, I mean, to be part of that coverage team was such an honor and it was one of those moments where you you know where you really recognize that you were involved in something special um that was incredible to me and i i really sort of felt like um i i i really felt like it was a um, you know, an amazing, you know, an amazing moment. You know, like I said, I was really humbled and to be there and to be, you know, it wasn't just being surrounded by, um, you know, it wasn't just being surrounded by famous people. Um, it was more, you know, I think it was more something like knowing that you were involved in a really, really special, really, it was like a state, it was like a state funeral. Yeah. And and I thought that was, you know, being with Larry Holmes and talking to Larry Holmes and everybody who kept coming on the uh, on the set that we were on the air for 11 hours straight. I'd never done anything like that in my life. And, 
and to to just be part of it was sort of phenomenal. And I felt like the um I don't know. I I felt like it was I'm trying to articulate this the right way because it was so humbling and it was so sad and it was so inspiring at the same time that you were really dealing with somebody who was a towering, towering world figure. And and I just was grateful to be there. And when we got done with it, after all that time, Dave Zayard and I got in the, in the car and we drove over to Ali's childhood home and just stood there and watched everybody. And it was just... It was amazing. It was really, really amazing. And I don't, I don't see necessarily the symmetry with Kobe Bryant simply because Kobe Bryant didn't mean anything as much to me as the way as what Muhammad Ali meant. It was obviously a tragedy. It was obviously incredibly sad for Kobe Bryant to lose his life in that way and so early. Um, I, I, and and the way the outpouring of emotion and the feeling that people had in the especially in as they say the NBA family you know, as to what he meant and what his potential was all of that is absolutely legitimate. Ali was on a different level. The Ali funeral, the feeling of being there, was on a totally different level. And um, and and I don't think I'll ever be part of anything like that again because there's nobody been <laughs> there's nobody like him there's nobody who fits that space and so um, I think one of the things that I remembered most is I'd never been to Kentucky that was the first thing I'd never been to Louisville mm. and so being there you got a real taste of a place that you'd never been to you got a taste of being involved in something very important and very special. You got a taste of being in in the street where I was talking to a police officer who was like, this is the safest day we've ever had. It's the most mm. respectful day we've ever had. These kids, they hate us and look at them now. And so that that was just sort of remarkable. And it was just, you know, and then when Kareem came on to the stu- in, in, in studio as well and you – there's a thing about life where you tend to recognize that your time is ending. And I don't want to sound morbid about it or anything, but there does reach a point. I was talking to David Halberstam about this 20 years ago, where he said, there's going to come a point in your life where going to funerals becomes a common occurrence. And I haven't reached that point yet, but we have reached the point where the elders are going and where all of these different highlights and check marks of your life and staples of your life. You know, Ali was one of those. And so all of a sudden, that generation of, of, of people that were, I mean, Reggie Jackson the other day turned 74. You're like, Reggie Jackson, 74? <laughs> yeah. And so all of that really, really mattered. Well, and I, I, I didn't mean to suggest that I find symmetry between Kobe Bryant and Muhammad Ali. I was just kind of startled that Kobe Bryant – I, I like I agree with you. I think Muhammad Ali is absolutely a global figure. Certainly he's occupied the most famous face in the world throughout a lot of his adult life. I would I would assume where he's been in contention for it. Um also one of the most beloved figures in the world for most of his adult life. Um whereas Kobe Bryant just seemed very much an American story, not an international yeah. story, but and I understand the circumstances are so different with 
somebody trapped in their body with what Ali endured um, from what early forties onward, he was a real symbol of that. Whereas Kobe was just 41 years old, losing his life. But I, I've always been kind of struck by how people are remembered for what they gave rather than what they had. And Ali seems like a prime example of that. I'm not sure what Kobe gave beyond being such an extraordinary basketball player and making some big changes. I I gather to be a much better husband and and father, especially due to the daughter he lost and and his other children. But um, I was a little bewildered by the response myself. No, I'm just the response because of what he meant to that generation. And, and Kobe was on his way to giving a lot. When you compare the relationship with the young generation, the younger generation coming up that Michael Jordan had compared to the relationship Kobe Bryant had with that younger generation um, succeeding him, he was incredibly giving. And mm. he was incredibly giving of his knowledge. And he was incredibly, you know, he was, he was beloved by them because he appeared to be, I don't know how much of it was, sales and marketing and the rest of it because we get to be so cynical today, but it seemed really genuine to me. It felt really genuine the way that the younger generation looked to him because they appreciated his approach to his craft, to his professionalism. That's a real thing. So I don't want to say that it didn't, I agree with you. I mean, I don't want to say that it, it, it didn't feel right. It just didn't feel to me the way Ali felt. Um, but I certainly had a great deal of respect for the moment. I certainly had a great deal of respect for for life. When when somebody, I remember I was at the in the garage putting my car away and my phone rang and my son, who could not care less about sports, was like, hey, Papa, Kobe Bryant just died. And I was like, oh, my God, right? So yeah. he was a big figure. And there's no doubt about that to that younger generation. He was, he, he was a, a, a giant. And so, and it is interesting as well, like I said, in this, in this day and age where you're dealing with, you know, in this day and age where everything is packaged and you really, really try to question what is real and what is controlled, everything is controlled, right? And so even when you see statements during a pandemic or even when you see statements about activism, they're usually very skillfully and artfully done by Nike or done by Adidas or some corporation is behind it all. And you're not sure what you can trust. So looking for that authenticity is is legitimate and you don't want to be cynical about it, but at the same time, you do need for it to feel authentic. And I thought that the feelings surrounding Kobe Bryant's death, it did feel authentic, even though it didn't, you know, hit me the same way it hit that younger generation. I think that's a good point. I mean, yeah, growing up with it, it's a very different thing because yeah, you're mourning. Yeah, exactly. and you're mourning yourself as well. That's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, one of the things I've always found really interesting with Ali is what a shitty, what a shitty person he was at selling stuff. He was never good at being a huckster. Like he's mm-hmm. he, he's not a commodity because. It's his spirit that moves people, that people connect to so profoundly. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the big topics when, when I go to lunch with Thomas Hauser is, is what was it like to see the impact he had on people? And it's just like it was just pure love. He yeah, just, exactly. Everybody just and fell in love said, with him. Were you at the funeral? No, no, I wasn't. 
Now, and you can see that there. You could see it there. You could absolutely see how much that mattered and how real that was for people. I mean, I was walking out. I took a break one of the, when we were in commercial. We took a little bit of a break, and I came outside, and the school bus went by. And I took video of it, and the school bus was chanting Ali Bumaye. There were a bunch of sixth graders. Wow. Like, what do you know about that? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that was 40-something years ago. That was 42 years ago. Yeah. And that's, that was a great example of it. So, yeah, yeah, that's my feeling. Well, and, and you know, I thought of Ali. There was an interview with Ezra Edelman talking about one of the last interviews he gave about O.J. Made in America, and he made the point that of all those civil rights leaders that were standing up, uh, African-American civil rights leaders who were speaking out and athletes, um, it's O.J. whose legacy has wrought or, or had the most purchase in the culture. And I thought, what a horrifically depressing thing to say. But I the don't super think I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I do either, but, but I, I do take his point that what it represents in terms of celebrity, superficiality, um, arguably being his, his degree of zero empathy for anybody but his own narcissism, um, it certainly lays the, the, the road to Trump in a way where almost like everything else seems quite marginalized or fringe or, or I don't know. Like I, I just never thought about it in those terms that what OJ would represent with his path of image transcending everything else about who he was as a person. Um, it doesn't like, I don't know. I, I wonder Floyd Mayweather trying to assert the TBE thing, the best ever is a clear attempt to position himself as a, a generation, his generation's Ali as the greatest, but they're so different, like so disturbingly different. And yet covering Floyd Mayweather and seeing kids respond to him, which is largely buying merchandise that says TBE on it and that kind of thing. It was I don't know, like it was one of the most depressing things that I've ever covered was going to Las Vegas for the Pacquiao fight and thinking this is the fight of the century, which again is comparing it to Ali Frazier in the previous century's fight of the century. But um, it seems so emblematic for our time in a lot of ways, as did he as the highest paid athlete and by extension the person – uh, you know, for commodities value is what we, how much we desire it. I just thought, really, this is what we desire? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things that work there. One, you can't duplicate. You can't duplicate the time. And two, yeah, <clears throat> 100%, this is it. We've, this is what, what devolution looks like, right? I mean, we have devolved. And this is what, and I was and, and this is what you've created when things matter less and less and less. And, and, and when you've, you've emphasized and valued the wrong things, this is where you end up. What did you, did you, were you surprised at the response to OJ made in America? I mean, I remember going to that film and bringing a 27 year old friend of mine 
and she said, what are we going to see? Because I didn't look when we when we walked in. I said, it's it's like a seven-hour documentary about O.J. Simpson. She had no idea who O.J. Simpson was. She knew nothing about race in Los Angeles and had never watched a football game in her life and was mesmerized by the entire duration. And I just thought, wow, how do you reach her? How do you reach her with O.J.? Uh, I just wonder what you what you made of it, like as a response to it, or or the collective ignorance of of how many people were surprised by what it spoke to. No, I try not to be surprised about these things for the simple fact that you know that I think it's it's a bit arrogant to do that and a bit ahistorical to do that. Mm. I mean, for example, okay. O.J. Simpson last played a football game in 1979, okay? And that was 41 years ago, right? That was the last time he actually played. And he was a cult hero in terms of movies, you know? He's a terrible actor who was a very visible actor. Yeah. Okay? I was 27 years old in 1995. So... That would be the equivalent of expecting me to understand the significance of something in 1945. So proportionately, if you start looking at how quickly time moves, yes, we understand. And yes, do we read more? Yes. Are we more literate? Absolutely. Than, than the current generations. <clears throat> but do we really understand the weight of who these figures were back then compared to somebody who lived it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think about this when I was watching The Last Dance, and it's the same thing, I'm sure, when you're watching O.J. And O.J., I think one of the differences with O.J., of course, is that O.J. is a true crime story more than it is a sports story. Yeah. And so when you're looking at a true crime story, then the audience is different. The audience changes. The Everything changes. And, of course, you know, what O.J. represented as well is wrestling with so many other racial questions that we talk about in terms of race and fame and silencing and power and all of these other concepts. But I remember after I was watching The Last Dance, I was looking at it and I was thinking, you know, um, somebody somewhere in the ninth century was doing something that everybody knew was never going to be forgotten. And we have no idea what we're talking about right now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm sure there are people in the ninth century who saw things happening there and said, nobody will ever forget this. This is going to stand the test of time. And when you put it that way, think about the number of times we say these things. This will never be forgotten. And it's it's almost all not true. And it's almost all forgotten. That is an interesting way of, of framing just the unbelievable amount of irrelevance that permeates everything. Well, and the speed of time and the power of time. It's not even that it's irrelevant. It's just that it's time. Time time replaces itself. And it's very difficult to anticipate what's going to matter. It's almost like when I, when you go to a museum or something, if you go to the Reina Sofia in Spain or wherever you go, right? Um, when I was at the, the last big, big museum I went to, I was at the Uffizi in in Florence. And 
and you look and you you look at what's there and what you're really looking at isn't history per se you're looking at what remained hmm. we don't know what got lost right and i think right. one of the one of the one of the great fantastic things about a civilized society isn't just what got preserved but you know that what got preserved is a tiny tiny fraction of what was created right that is interesting because I, I, when I was researching chess for a book I wrote a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. it was invented the same year as toilet paper in the 600s. And I just thought how many things, kind of exactly the same point you're making, is chess is pure signal. Like exactly what was played in 600, what was invented in India and traders who are moving around or bored. So they're playing this game that was designed and you would incorporate some of the, you know, when it moved into Spain, they suddenly you have a queen and, and you start adopting what the Royal family is to have it reflected in this game. Mm-hmm. But, but basically it's all signal from there to here. And it makes you think how much is signal from that time? Like Alexander right. the great might be the greatest conqueror who ever lived. How do we not know where his remains are? How is it possible that, like, for 600 years, it was a big deal to go visit it, and then they just got lost, and it just disappeared? And at a certain point, people were like, I don't know anybody who knows where that is anymore. Yeah, fuck it. Because that's what happens, right? That's what happens, yeah. But that's why it's also amazing to think that there are certain lines that still exist, that there are certain that, that even after all these years, you to use a language that you understand that you are still playing Queens Indian and Kings Indian defenses, and you're still using Alekhine's defense, and you remember names like Capablanca, and you remember all of these different. You remember it's almost like chess to me in so many ways is like it's like being it's like the it's like the medical community where you name a disease after a person and that's how that name lives forever. That's how you remember these people, even though you don't know anything about them. And so I'm in the middle of a game right now where I'm playing a Nimzo, I'm playing a Nimzo Indian defense. (laughs) And I, it's like, okay, what do you know about Nimzovich? Nothing. (laughs) Except I know that, I know that his line survived the same way Hodgkin's disease survives, you know, the same way, you know, that, that these things become part of culture over time, it's about what remains. I'm sure there are many players who played against Indrich who probably thought, well, wait a minute, I thought my line's a bit more clever than this one. Why is this one the one that survives? Right. So it's, it's just what happens. My last question would just be, given that you wrote an entire book about steroids, what you made of, of the most recent uh, ESPN your employer, um, their documentary with Lance's participation, um, exploring his usage. Zero interest in Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong refused to watch it, have not seen it, can't watch. I I hit my Lance meter a long time ago. (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. It's like I, you know, there are some car crash things you want to watch and some people said it was really well made or whatever. I just have, I have no interest in, in the infamy of Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong destroyed a lot of lives. Lance yeah. Armstrong destroyed 
Lance Armstrong destroyed a lot of people. He destroyed a lot of concepts, concepts of fairness, concepts of honesty, concepts of journalism. The number of people who were scared off of stories because they were afraid of Lance's power. The number of people who made money off of Lance and Lance was dirty. And Lance knew he was dirty. And all of it, that, that type of celebrity and the fact that Lance feels, he doesn't feel anything. You could watch him and see him. He don't care. Yeah. He doesn't care. I mean, and, and I'm like, yeah, not interested. I'm not interested in you. There's so many other things I'm interested in. I'm not interested in you. I'm just shocked that a guy made $125 million off of all of this unbelievable level of cheating and using cancer as a shield, and you pay $5 million, and he feels like he's a victim in the arrangement. It sounds like but, a pretty good deal to me. Well, it sounds like a terrible deal to me, because what are we celebrating? If you really wanted to, if you really were about it, he doesn't get a phone call at all. Isolate him. We don't care about you. You were, we, you know, you were believable and you were compelling when you were clean. Your phone's not going to ring now that you're dirty. Why should you get five million dollars? You know, I mean, that's the whole thing. I don't have a fascination with you. You wouldn't have gotten a penny from me. I don't find you fascinating. And this goes back to what we talk about about what stories get told, who's got the lens, who does. You know, think of all the stories out there. They, you know, you're a journalist, I'm a journalist, the number of people who call us who want to tell their stories and they can't get a sniff. Right. And this guy, Lance Armstrong could tell another documentary tomorrow. I just don't want to participate in that. I, I totally agree with you. I, I guess I'm just raising it in the sense that all lying is a cooperative act. And I am interested in reverse engineering why his lie, and I get why his lie was so powerful and lucrative, the most lucrative narrative in sports, it, it, you know, for a while there, it seemed like, was that you can come back stronger from death's doorstep with cancer because we've all been touched by cancer in some way in our families. But to use, to weaponize it the way he did, I mean, uh, it just seems America is going through a lot with a lot of its heroes um, being undressed by, by, I mean, somebody said it with him, and it seems true of a, a number of other major cultural figures that Lance had everything, but he never had the truth. That, that struck me as, as a pretty powerful insight into his story. Well, I had no interest in, I got to say. Hmm. And the, and the reason is, is because I feel like this is what we do with money. I mean, money is the reason why we're paying attention to this, right? And the amount of money that Lance made, the money that, yep. that Lance raised, all I just don't care. Yeah. I'm, I'm bored by money and I'm bored by him. Well, then the last question in relation to this is, how prevalent do you still think performance-enhancing drugs are to sports? Is it everywhere, do you think? Everywhere. Everywhere. Are, do you think anybody can make it without – I'm not anyone, but you know what I mean. Is it, is it just at the point where <laughs> – like, do, does the public even care? No, the public doesn't care. The public hasn't cared. I mean, it goes back to what Dick Pound used to say all the time. Do you want a fast race or do you want a clean race? We want and I think that race. this is the whole thing, what, what the culture has done. The culture has decided if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. The culture has decided that, that if, we, if we absolve their cheating, it allows us to cut some corners ourselves. 
And, it, and the whole thing just bores the living shit out of me. Well, I'm sorry to end on that note, but I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for your no, time. it's been great. Thanks again. Have a great day. Cool. Thank you. Yep. Take it easy. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.